is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. This episode is brought to you by Easy Recess, your ultimate support for the first hour of resuscitation. This amazing phone app has drug dosing, treatment algorithms, and procedural aids all in under three clicks. Rapid access to life-saving critical info in a user-friendly interface. Try the app for free with the promo code EMCASES or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES. That's the letters E-Z recess.com slash EMCASES. All right, to kick off this EM Quick Hits, Swami is going to give us an update on induction agents. Now, as you're listening, think about which airway situations you'd reach for ketamine versus propofol versus etomidate and why. EM clinicians love a good airway argument. We've got the ongoing video versus direct laryngoscopy discussion, bougie first, we've got rock versus sucks, just to name a few, and induction agents are another area with a lot of impassioned discussion on which drug is best and what dose we should be using. The most common agents that we are reaching for are atomidate, ketamine, and propofol. I'm not even going to discuss midazolam. It's truly a subpar agent when compared to the other three. And honestly, I haven't used it in close to 20 years. Atomidate has been the darling agent in EM for most of my career. I think there's a good reason for it. It doesn't intrinsically have vasodilatory effects. So in theory, it minimizes hemodynamic changes. It works fast. It goes away relatively quickly. And it doesn't have a lot of contraindications. We've heard for years about the adrenal suppression that comes from Atomidate, and we mostly blew it off because the effect was transient and there was no real data that it changed patient-centered outcomes. I don't really care that the patient had some transient adrenal suppression. I really care if there's a mortality difference or there's a real morbidity difference. But we do now have some increasing evidence around this area of Atomidate and worse outcomes. The biggest of this is from Katani and colleagues in the Journal of Critical Care showing an association between increased mortality and the use of Atomidate for intubation. Now, the data isn't pristine, but it should at least give us a moment of pause to consider reaching for a different agent, if available, in the critically ill. I definitely wouldn't tell anyone not to use Atomidate, especially since many of us don't have other options. But if you have ketamine, that might be the replacement agent for Atomidate. It's got a longer half-life than Atomidate, which covers the patient longer. That's really great if we're using a long-acting paralytic. Ketamine also has analgesic properties, which is really nice because ET tubes are painful. The old approach of avoiding it in patients with head trauma and elevated blood pressure doesn't really seem to hold up. We've got plenty of data saying that's okay. In fact, ketamine may be neuroprotective in those with intracranial bleeds, though that data isn't robust either. Though ketamine can increase blood pressure, it does so through stimulating endogenous catecholamines. In the critically ill, stressed patient, it's unlikely ketamine is going to raise the blood pressure as the patient is already maxed out on their endogenous catechols. So we really shouldn't worry too much that the dose of ketamine is going to increase the blood pressure, but we also shouldn't rely on the ketamine to increase the blood pressure. Though atomidate and ketamine don't have intrinsic properties that cause hypotension, 
they can still drop blood pressure by removing the patient's catecholaminergic drive. However, this response doesn't appear to be dose-dependent. And again, this has to do with the intrinsic properties of these agents. Agents like midazolam and propofol intrinsically drop blood pressure. Atominate and ketamine don't. So yes, if you give atominate or ketamine, you might lose some of that patient's catecholaminergic drive, but the dose probably doesn't make much of a difference. For the better part of a decade, though, we've been talking about reducing the dose of our induction agents in order to protect the patient's hemodynamics during RSI. Again, based on how these drugs work, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And now we do have some data telling us that this isn't the way to go. Driver and colleagues analyzed the NEAR database, and what they found was that there was no relationship between reduced doses of atomidate or ketamine and the risk of hypotension. Of course, the NEAR database is far from perfect at giving us answers to the questions that we have, but when you combine the data that we do have with the way these drugs work, it probably should push us away from reduced doses of those induction agents for RSI. Finally, let's touch a little bit on propofol because this agent works far differently. We know that propofol does have intrinsic hemodynamic properties. It will drop blood pressure when you give it through vasodilation as well as cardiac depression. But propofol is still a fantastic induction agent if we carefully consider when to use it and what dose to use. Because of its hemodynamic effects, reduced dose propofol in the critically ill or hypotensive patient does make sense. Instead of pushing one to two mg per kg for RSI, you can titrate the propofol in until you get the level of disassociation that you want, or we can take a much easier approach, which is just to give the shocky patient a markedly reduced dose, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the dose you would give to a patient with normal hemodynamic parameters. So we're talking about somewhere between 15 or 20 milligrams of propofol for induction. That small dose of propofol is enough to induce the patient to make sure they don't have awareness of paralysis, but is less likely to cause massive hemodynamic swings. In general, though, I'm not reaching for propofol in the patient who is hemodynamically compromised or shocky. For those patients, I'd much rather use ketamine, or if I don't have ketamine, atomidate. Propofol has a much larger role in the patient who's hypertensive. So for my neurointubations, propofol is definitely my go-to drug, whether that is stroke or intracranial hemorrhage, status epilepticus. Alcohol withdrawal is another great place to reach for propofol as it does suppress seizure activity. It's a great antidote for alcohol withdrawal as well in those patients who fail benzodiazepines and phenobarbital. And of course, propofol is also useful in suppressing seizure activity in the other neuro patients, the intracranial hemorrhage patient, obviously the patient with status where the other medications have failed. And of course, propofol is also a fantastic post-intubation sedation medication because it works quickly. We can get patients into that sedated state that we want them to quickly, and then also bring them out of that state rapidly if we want to reassess their neuro status or just to wake them up and see how they're doing. Bringing all of this together, we can see that there really is some emerging data on induction agents that we need to be considering when we make our decisions. First of all, with Atomidate, there's some data telling us there's increased mortality, which may not be perfect data, but it tells us that if we have another option like ketamine, we should consider using that instead. Dose reductions of Atomidate and ketamine are unlikely to reduce the risk of hypotension post-RSI because they intrinsically don't really have blood pressure effects. In contrast to that, propofol dosing should be reduced in RSI for shocky patients or those that are hypotensive, 
or it should be avoided completely. But no reason to fret if you're a propofol enthusiast because there are still plenty of places where propofol is a great induction medication, specifically in the neurocritical care intubations like stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, and status epilepticus. This is very exciting because coming up a bit later in the podcast, we have Dr. Katie Lynn, one of our go-to neuro-EM experts, who's going to talk about the neuroprotective intubation. And I wonder how her opinion will compare to Swami's when it comes to induction agents and hemodynamics. So stay tuned. All right. Next up, we have the best of CGEM with Hans Rosenberg, who's going to review for us when, if ever, we should use gabapentinoids in our patients who are suffering in pain in the ED. The last time we looked at gabapentinoids was in our main episode called Drugs That Work and Drugs That Don't with Justin Morgenstern and Joel Lex. The take-home message at that time was that gabapentinoids are not recommended for routine use in ED patients with low back pain and should be reserved for patients with post-herpetic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathy using the lowest dose with cessation on day three if there is no effect. We later updated that post with a study in 2019 of more than 19,000 patients that showed an association between gabapentinoids and suicidal behavior, unintentional overdoses, traumatic injuries, and road traffic incidents and offenses. And that was more so for pregabalin than for gabapentin. All right. All right. Let's hear what CGEM's Just the Facts bottom line recommendations are when it comes to gabapentinoids for patients with pain in the ED. Over the past decade, the prescription of gabapentin and pregabalin has surged significantly, especially for conditions like back and neck pain. In fact, studies show an astonishing five-fold increase in prescriptions. Now, despite their name, gabapentinoids don't interact with GABA receptors. Instead, they likely function by inhibiting calcium influx at neurons in the central nervous system, playing a crucial role in the pain processing pathway. Gabapentin and pregabalin are the two most common medications in this class, but it's essential to note that gabapentin has lower bioavailability and less predictable pharmacokinetics than pregabalin, requiring a longer titration to reach an effective dose. Both drugs necessitate progressive titration, with gabapentin taking about 14 days and pregabalin about 7 days to reach an effective analgesic dose. I think you can already see one of the critical takeaways. Due to their prolonged titration periods, gabapentinoids are unlikely to offer acute analgesia in the emergency setting, which is what we're looking for. Now, emergency physicians may consider prescribing gabapentinoids for painful diabetic neuropathy and post-herpetic neuralgia, which is supported by Cochrane Reviews in 2017 and 2019. The NNT for gabapentin and pregabalin in treating diabetic neuropathy and post-herpetic neuralgia is quite promising for achieving 50% pain relief. However, the authors in this paper caution against prescribing these medications in the emergency setting due to their long titration periods unless follow-up care can be arranged with the patient's primary care provider in a timely fashion to help with titration and follow-up. Now, beyond post-herpetic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathy, the evidence supporting gabapentinoid use in other neuropathic conditions is limited at best. In fact, a meta-analysis in CMAJ in 2018 found no significant effect of gabapentinoids in treating low back pain, one of the most commonly cited reasons for prescribing it in the emergency department. From my experience, it seems a lot of emergency physicians describe gabapentinoids to avoid an opioid prescription 
and all of the associated side effects. However, what are the side effects of these medications? Well, they sound a lot like opioid side effects. This includes dizziness, somnolence, gait disturbances, and GI issues. In addition, peripheral edema and blurred vision are commonly reported. In fact, the number needed to harm for any one of these side effects is around 8 for gabapentin, and they occur in a dose-dependent fashion. Let's talk briefly about one of the most serious side effects, which is respiratory depression. There's a notable risk, especially in the elderly patients or those concurrently taking opioids or sedatives. Combining opioids with gabapentinoids significantly increases the risk of opioid-related death, as indicated in a recent Canadian study. Finally, patients with CHF or reduced ejection fraction should also steer clear of gabapentinoids due to the risk of peripheral edema and weight gain. Renal impairment would also be a concern given that gabapentinoids rely heavily on renal clearance for elimination. In conclusion, while gabapentinoids may have their place in managing certain conditions, as we talked about herpetic neuralgia and diabetic neuropathy, the evidence and risk suggests that emergency physicians should exercise caution in prescribing them, and if prescribed, close monitoring and a thoughtful approach to titration and discontinuation are crucial. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now imagine you had an extra hour in your day. What would you do with that hour? Go to the gym, read a book, take a nap? I think I can safely say that we all wish we had more time. Now you need to know what's important to you and make that thing a priority and do it. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you most so that you can do more of it. Therapy has helped me immeasurably to figure out my priorities, set boundaries, and be the best version of myself. If you're considering therapy, BetterHelp is a convenient, efficient, and flexible way to get the therapy you want. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched to a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no extra charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash EMCases today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-M cases. Hi there, this is Katie Lynn. I'm an emergency physician, stroke physician, and critical care air transport physician based out of Calgary, Alberta. Let's take a dive into the world of neuroprotective airway management. If you have a patient with a neurocritical condition, whether that's severe traumatic brain injury, intracranial hemorrhage, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or stroke, you need to approach your airway management with extra caution because the peri-intubation period can be fraught with peril. Let's review some tips around neuroprotective airway management that you can bring to your next case. Tip number one, consider airway management prior to imaging or transport. Remember that neurocritical conditions can deteriorate quickly once things progress beyond the range of the brain's ability to autoregulate. So a lot can happen on the journey to CT and back or during transport to another center. Ask yourself, is your patient with suspected intracranial injury actively vomiting, too agitated to lie still, rapidly dropping their GCS, or having apneic spells? If so, it's time to think about airway capture now. The threshold to intubate in the setting of a suspected intracranial disaster is lower to ensure that time-critical neuroimaging, transport, and or other interventions can be completed quickly and safely. Tip number two, include a 10-second neuro exam pre-intubation if at all possible. 
include a very quick neuro exam for critical findings before you intubate. It should take no longer than 10 seconds. Once the patient is intubated, the neuro exam becomes limited. But our stroke, ICU, and neurosurgery colleagues often rely on certain critical findings to make the ultimate go or no-go decision on definitive management once an imaging diagnosis has been confirmed. There are two questions that our consultants care about most. First, is the patient herniating or severely disabled by their intracranial condition? This is to help determine the urgency of intervention. And second, is the brain still salvageable with intervention? This is to determine if intervention makes a difference in the outcome. What does this 10-second neuroexam look like? Easy. It's three components that you're already familiar with. GCS, eyes, and lateralizing motor response. GCS. What is the patient's GCS and is it actively dropping from what it was before? Eyes. Are the pupils equal and reactive? Are the eyes disconjugate or deviated to one side? And if the patient is unconscious, are the corneal reflexes intact? Lateralizing motor response. What kind of motor response are we seeing? And have we seen with our own eyes movements that are purposeful and equal bilaterally? Or is there asymmetry or posturing present? GCS, eyes, and lateralizing motor response. Tip number three, keep it simple and avoid hypotension and hypoxia. In a crashing brain, when things are going downhill fast, choose the tools and approach that you are most experienced with. There is no single right way, but rather the best approach is the one that you know well and wield often. Choose the tools that you are most comfortable with and don't complicate things by adding unfamiliar elements under stress. The key is to avoid hypotension and hypoxia throughout the peri-intubation period. For me, this looks like an RSI, provided there are no predictors of an anatomically difficult airway. If we look at the P's of RSI, I pre-oxygenate with a non-rebreather over high-flow nasal cannula at flush. I pre-treat with an antiemetic if the patient is vomiting, with fentanyl if the patient is hypertensive, or with a vasopressor like phenylephrine or norepinephrine if the patient is hypotensive, all while setting up the rest of my equipment. I prepare my equipment. This includes verbalizing to the team what my plan A, plan B, and rescue plans are in the event of failed airway capture. I ensure that the team is aware of my predefined oxygen saturation threshold that someone can help keep an eye out on and call out that will let me know when I need to back out and reoxygenate if needed. I typically use a threshold of 90% sats. I make sure that my drugs and equipment are accessible at the bedside and that I have rescue equipment, including a BVM, LMA, bougie and cry kit near at hand if needed. I position the patient with the head of the bed at 15 to 30 degrees to mitigate ICP effects. Even in patients who have spinal precautions, I use reverse Trendelenburg to the best of my ability to ensure that I can get as close to this positioning as possible. I induce the patient with ketamine typically, at a dose of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram if the patient is hemodynamically stable, or at a reduced dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram if the patient is hypotensive. Ballpark doses are about 100 to 150 milligrams for the average-sized hemodynamically stable adult, or reduced doses of 25 to 50 milligrams for the average-sized hypotensive adult. 
I paralyze with either succinylcholine or rocuronium. The advantage of succinylcholine is that it wears off quicker, so you can resume your neurologic monitoring much sooner. Although studies suggest that there may be a brief spike in ICP during the fasciculation phase, there is no convincing evidence that this has any impact on long-term clinical effects for neurologic outcome. The advantage of rocuronium is that it's non-depolarizing, so you don't have that hypothetical ICP spiking effect, and there are just fewer contraindications to worry about in the heat of the moment. Plus, it tends to keep the patient still during critical transport periods, either during imaging or transport to another center. Basically, take your pick based on what you're comfortable with and what you have readily at hand. For post-intubation sedation, I tend to use propofol and fentanyl infusions in combination if the patient is normotensive or hypertensive, whereas I tend to use ketamine infusion instead if the patient is hypotensive. We need to remember that our work is not done just after the tube passes the cords. It's also important for us to ensure that neuroprotective ventilation settings are appropriately applied. For me, this typically looks like ventilator settings of a respiratory rate of 16, tidal volume of 8 cc's per kilo, FiO2 of 100%, PEEP of 5, and I'm targeting a PaCO2 of 35 to 40 and O2 sats of 94% or above. If I have a few additional minutes to prepare in advance, I might consider optimizing by including a few finesse items, but only if I and my team have the bandwidth to do so. These are nice-to-haves, not need-to-haves. So for me, this would include fentanyl, 3 micrograms per kilogram, IV, at about 3 minutes prior to intubation. So again, we're going to ballpark at about 200 micrograms for an average size adult if the patient is normotensive or hypertensive. I do not give this if the patient is hypotensive. I might also ask for a lidocaine spray for the cords to reduce the ICP spike that can occur with any laryngeal stimulation. So the next time you're faced with the challenge of a neuroprotective airway capture, remember, one, consider airway management prior to imaging or transport with a lower threshold for airway capture in the setting of active vomiting, difficult to control agitation, rapidly dropping GCS, or dysregulated breathing with apneic spells. Two, include a 10-second brief screening neuroexam if possible, looking at GCS, eyes, and lateralizing motor response. And three, keep your approach simple, using the techniques you are most familiar with. Just remember to avoid hypotension and hypoxia, and you and the patient will be just fine. I couldn't have summarized it any better myself. Thank you so much, Dr. Lin. Now, continuing with our neurology theme, our next quick hit is on a symptom that can be very challenging to sort out sometimes because so often it's benign. However, there could be a lurking serious neurologic diagnosis beneath it, and that topic is paresthesias. Here's Nur Khatib on paresthesias. Hi, everyone. This is Noor Khatib here with a quick hit on a topic we as emergency doctors aren't a huge fan of. Ah, paresthesias. Nonspecific, could be anything. Where do we even start? Let's get a general approach. I'll start by introducing my colleague, Dr. Hamza Jalal, a neurologist at Markham Stovall Hospital, 
the leader of the Markham Stovall Hospital pickleball team as well. Welcome, Dr. Jalal. Thank you for having me. All right, Dr. Jalal. So here's a case for you. We've got a 46-year-old female with right arm paresthesias. She's right arm dominant, three days of numbness and tingling. There's been no weakness that she's noted, and she has no past medical history. She's not on any medications. Her numbness and tingling is from her upper arm to her lower arm. There's no specific region to it. She works as a custodian. She has no diabetes and her BMI is 24. So what would be your approach in this case? Well, Dr. Khatib, we are neurologists and until artificial intelligence replaces us, we are still very good at localizing and This is super important because, as everyone knows, any symptom under the sun can be neurological, right? And so localization helps to narrow down that list and then can bring about focus as well. So the way I do it, and I want to get right into it, is by starting off clarifying the history. You want to ask, and my approach to all of these questions would be the big three questions, which is sensory symptoms elaborate on that, whether it comes with pain, and whether it's associated with weakness. So for example, if you start with the sensory symptoms themselves, someone comes in with numbness or paresthesias, always expand on what that word means. What do you mean by numbness? Does it mean like ants crawling? Does it mean like pins and needles? Or does it mean like a dead sensation? Okay, so the big three, the sensory symptoms, find out what they mean by the numbness and find out if there's any weakness. Now, is it true though, when someone is saying, hey, I've got some tingling, it's like answer crawling, I don't have to worry about strokes. That's kind of how I learned it, as strokes take away sensation, but tingling is an added sensation. Can you elaborate on that thought? That is a great question. So this is basically getting at positive versus negative sensory symptoms. Positive sensory symptoms, you can think of them as resulting from nerve irritation or hyperexcitability. Think of it like a nerve that is still alive but misfiring. Okay, so that results in paresthesias like tingling or dysesthesias like burning or shocks or jabs versus negative sensory symptoms which basically implies that the nerve is dead and there is no information being transmitted. So therefore, when you get symptoms like numbness, think of like an anesthetic loss of sensation, for example, that would be a negative sensory symptom. So with that definition clarified, the classic textbook answer to your question is that negative sensory symptoms would result from a CNS, central nervous system lesion, such as a stroke you know, you would observe more numbness than you would do, you would observe tingling or burning because that part of the brain is starved of oxygen and is dead. The opposite would occur in a peripheral nervous system lesion, for example, carpal tunnel or radiculopathy. This is not due to a dead nerve, but maybe a compression of the nerve, causing it to become irritable or angry. And that would result in more of a tingling presentation, burning, for example. And just as a final point on this, what I have learned in neurology is that neurology is never absolute and there will always be exceptions. So I don't depend, nor do I promote this rubric or shortcut as a way to differentiate stroke or not a stroke. And we can talk about a much better way, which is to ask further clarifying questions, which we'll be getting into. 
All right. Thanks so much for clarifying that. Got it. So yes, sensory symptoms where things are taken away are more CNS and added symptoms like tingling are more PNS, but this is not an absolute rule. All right. What else am I looking for, Dr. Jalal? Okay. So we go back to my big three, sensory symptoms, pain, and weakness. We talked about sensory symptoms. We clarified what are they exactly. Next, let's talk about weakness. Is there associated weakness? Expand on this as well. Some people will say that they wake up at night and their whole hand is not moving. Well, that sounds like a really bad red flag, maybe like a stroke. But then you clarify this with the patient and they say, yeah, 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 the hand moves, but it's not what the brain wants them to do, right? Like I want it to go one way, it goes the other way. So they're getting at incoordination, not weakness. So you can see the importance of clarifying whether there is actual true weakness, objective weakness, or something else. And then the third component, which is pain. When there is pain, typically you want to think about a peripheral nervous system lesion. Once again, think about carpal tunnel, ulnar neuropathy, radiculopathy. And when there is no pain, you want to start thinking about a central nervous system lesion like stroke or MS. Again, these are not absolutes. Uh, you can have a thalamic lesion, for example, thalamic stroke that can cause pain as well. And you can have ALS, which is a peripheral nervous system lesion, which has no pain. So now let's say in terms of, so we're going through our history. Now we've gone through the sensory component, the pain component. What about the timing? Always start with when it first began. The symptom onset is extremely important. And one of the ways I clarify that is by asking a question like, when did you last feel completely normal? Or if they're coming in with hand symptoms, like in our patient's case, you would ask, when did your hand last feel completely normal? And often you will find that they may say later on that the symptoms started two days ago, but on this question, they may answer something like, I've had this before, but two days ago, it was the worst that I've had. So it gives you a bit of better clarity as well. You want to clarify not just the onset, but how it started. Did it start abruptly? Did it start suddenly? Or did it take a few days or a few weeks to kind of peak into intensity as well? The next thing after the onset that's very important is duration. And you want to break this down into episodic symptoms, which I often ask patients, are these symptoms something that come and go for you, stop and go, intermittent, for example, carpal tunnel syndrome, or are they continuous, permanent? Are they present for you at every single minute of the day? And when you get these clarifications, you want to ask a little bit more. Okay, if it is episodic, if it comes and goes, what is it that brings it out? What specific positions? What time of the day? Is it during sleep? Is it when you're lying down? And then if it is continuous or permanent, you want to ask whether it is continuous and staying the same, like a static course, or if it's continuous, but goes up and down, like in waves and fluctuating. All of these pieces of data will give further diagnostic clarity as well. What a great way to take a history. Neurologists are definitely detail-oriented with that history. Now onto the physical exam. I am assuming we're doing our two to three minute ED neuro exam. Any specific pointers we should be looking for? I have uh, placed in the show notes a great ED neuro exam video for our listeners. For the exam, I would say that I've spent six years in training, perfecting, if that is even possible, the neurological exam. So I have issues personally with shortchanging the neuro exam into a two or three minute exam. We should all suffer together in medicine is my philosophy. I'm just kidding. 
here are the th key, key things to look for. Obviously, you want to look for weakness on your examination. And here is an important tip. Push hard on your tests for the muscles. People often do a very quick push, and that would not give you the full result. Reflexes, very, very important. Elevated or brisk reflexes. Think about the CNS. Hard to get reflexes. Think about the PNS. Your fingers or your stethoscopes or your butterfly point-of-care ultrasound machines are only good to detect very brisk reflexes. Otherwise, they're about as useful as intubating someone with a clothes hanger. Wait, are you saying we should be using a reflex hammer, which FYI is non-existent in the emergency department unless a neurologist is walking by? Yeah, so I think if any of my neurology colleagues hear that, I'm done. All right, all right. We'll keep it to just between us. The sensory exam is very controversial because it's quite subjective. The way I like to do it is just to grab a Kleenex and do a very light swipe over the areas that are affected or subjectively reported to be affected. And finally, just get them to reproduce their symptoms. If they tell you that they lie down and it's with their arm bent and this lie down on the right side, for example, and that's when they get their hand tingling, just get them to replicate that if you have the time in the emergency department while you're taking the history. Just get them on their side, lying down with their arms under their or their hand under their head and see if that brings out the symptoms. That's a great pearl. So get them to reproduce their symptoms and show you in the emergency department. So we've done history, we've done physical. What am I looking for? What am I ordering? Personally, if it's paresthesia in the arm that's non-local like this, like in our case, with no stroke-like symptoms on history or exam findings, I'm likely ordering a TSH, lights, maybe extended lights. If there's risk factors, I might add a trope. If the history is vague and this might be cardiac in nature uh, with the arm and if the story makes sense. If the paresthesia is in the lower extremities, I might order a B12. In terms of CT versus no CT, in this case, I probably wouldn't. Uh, it doesn't fit with the story or the exam. Can you comment on what you would do in terms of what to order, what your impression would be, your treatment and your plan? Absolutely. So in this case, we need more information, first of all, to direct the investigations. But in similar situations, I would just generally tend to order A1C, B12, and even ferritin on most of my patients with sensory symptoms, especially if I'm suspecting peripheral nervous system lesions, as iron deficiency and B12 deficiency both can produce sensory symptoms. Oh, great point. Okay. So don't forget that ferritin and B12. Even for upper extremity, you would still order the B12? Absolutely. For A1C though, we'll be checking likely just their random glucose in the eMERGE. When should I be concerned about ordering a CT? Generally speaking, I would say anything that has come on relatively fast. Numbness, tingling that comes on abruptly involves more than one contiguous body part. For example, if the face and arm or the arm and leg or one side of the whole body is affected, or if there is a significant lifestyle impact, for example, balance issues because of numbness or paresthesias in the lower limbs, consider imaging. Also, if there is no pain but continuous sensory symptoms, again, think CNS lesions like stroke, so you would want to do imaging for that as well. Otherwise, you are okay most of the time to consider an outpatient workup, and don't forget to include nerve conduction studies or EMG electromyography in that. Excellent. What is our differential in this case? So a reminder of our case, 46-year-old female with three days of upper to lower arm paresthesias. Well, we definitely need more data and clarification here first. But to think about it broadly, you can go anatomically. Starting with the brain, you want to ensure it's not a stroke. 
That's unlikely in this case, given the paresthesias and the fact that there is only one limb involved. In the brain, you think about MS as well, or a mass lesion, for example, tumors. Then next, think about the spinal cord. You don't want to miss a myelopathy. Typically, though, there would be more weakness and balance disturbance rather than paresthesias. And then we come to the peripheral nervous system, starting with nerve roots, which is radiculopathy, and then nerves themselves, for example, with entrapment neuropathies like carpal tunnel syndrome or ulnar neuropathies could be possible here. So that's sort of the high-level overview. In our case, the relatively recent, seemingly abrupt onset of arm paresthesias would make me think of either brain or peripheral lesion like radiculopathy or entrapment neuropathy. With the clarifying questions we discussed before, I think this could be narrowed down even further. Great point. Now, a couple of things that our listeners should definitely be thinking about also is don't forget about shingles. Please look at the skin. Please clarify what the pain feels like if it's a burning kind of pain. So don't forget shingles in your differential when linking anatomically. And at the same time, don't forget about asking about other areas of numbness, other areas of sensory loss in the back of your mind, thinking maybe MS. Now, Speaking of MS, though, Dr. Jalal, in terms of MS, do these do the sensory changes happen at the same time in different limbs, in different areas of the body? Are they simultaneous or do they happen at different times? That's a great point. I would think of it in the following way. Think about it as, first of all, whether there are contiguous involvement of the limbs. For example, the arm and the leg are involved together or whether the face or the arm is involved or whether the face, arm and leg are involved together. When you think about central nervous system lesions like MS, like stroke, you have a small lesion that can cause disturbance to multiple different limbs at the same time. So the bottom line here is that if you have an arm and a leg and a face and an arm involvement, which started at the same time and which are affected at the same time, for example, if your hand is tingling, your leg is also tingling at the same time, you really want to be thinking about the brain or the spinal cord. This is in contrast to, for example, the arm tingling at one point and at a later point, the foot is tingling. So that reduces the chances that this is a central nervous system lesion. You would think more about an entrapment neuropathy, radiculopathy, for example. Okay, interesting to know. So MS symptoms, the limbs or face will be simultaneously affected, not at different times. Sounds good. Okay. Hmm. You have mentioned face paresthesias a few times, and I dare ask you if the case was different and this was a face paresthesia case only isolated. But you know what? I will keep this for part two of paresthesias for the next quick hit. Thank you so much, Dr. Jalal, for being with us today and educating us on paresthesias. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Made me tingle. I love it when old school medicine leads us the way. A good history and physical is so essential in these cases. All right, last but not least, given that the burnout rate in EM is still quite high, even after the pandemic has settled, I was eager to have Dr. Eric Wartman give us his take on preventing burnout in emergency medicine. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Easy Recess, your ultimate support to save lives during the first hour of resuscitation. Picture this. You're faced with intubating a seizing child, managing a peri-arrest patient with a beta blocker overdose, or resuscitating a breathless premature newborn. Calculating doses, setting up drips, choosing the right equipment, and remembering each step can be overwhelming. 
Easy Recess changes the game. Download Easy Recess today. Use promo code EMCases, that's one word, E-M-C-A-S-E-S, to get your first two months free or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCases for more details. And Easy Recess is E-Z-R-E-S-U-S. Emergency medicine has evolved into an amazingly dynamic and rich specialty that attracts the best and the brightest. There are some big questions that we should be asking ourselves that we might not think often to do. And one of those questions that our next guest expert, Dr. Eric Wortman, would like to answer is, how do we lead the way, not only in taking care of our patients, but also in taking care of ourselves? So welcome to EM Cases, Dr. Wortman. Uh, before we dive into how we can lead the way in taking care of ourselves and our patients, can you just tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this topic and your professional background? Sure, and thanks for having me. Well, you know, I've practiced emergency medicine for 30 years. I'm residency trained in emergency medicine. I trained at Oregon Health Sciences University, and I trained in the early 90s. And that was a time when there was still a bridge back to the originators of our specialty. And so I trained with some of those phenomenal physicians and have remained excited about emergency medicine throughout my career. So my interest lies first in emergency medicine. And then because I interface with students and residents, I became much more interested in their process at the beginning of their career. And through the COVID pandemic, it became very clear to me how difficult our specialty is. Uh, and so the last four years in particular, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of a career in emergency medicine, how do we survive and be healthy. And I had a conversation with an emergency physician who was doing a fellowship in education, Dr. Jessica Pelletier at Washington University. And I asked her, what are you doing with the residents? What are you doing to prepare them for the emotional and psychological aspects of what we encounter over our careers? And the answer, it was clear from her answer that we have a lot of work to do. So that's the general background of where I'm coming from. All right. So we want to try and improve the mental state of our emergency providers, and there's some work to do there. I imagine that things are different across the country and between countries in terms of what's available. I'm lucky where I work, we have a, an amazing mentorship program. We have access to psychologists. It's, it's really quite a, an amazing thing that they've set up. But I just want to talk sort of more first in a general sense about how do we identify those physicians who are in need of support and how do we actually provide that support to them. So I guess the first thing is, you know, things have changed quite a lot over the over the years. You know, I too have been working as a physician for many, many years. And I remember the days when it would be extremely rare, put it that way, for any physician to step up and say, you know, I'm having trouble emotionally or, or mentally. So in a general sense, how do we identify those physicians who need support? I would say that they all need support, but all of us need support. So that's the, that's where it comes. That's where I start from. And, and the reason for that is no matter what culture a physician's working in, the culture of the hospital, the culture of the practice, the culture of the country, the fact is we will encounter very, very difficult things many times over our career. And there may be some cases that are extremely difficult for us and take their toll individually. Then also there's a cumulative effect. And so we have to be aware that that is what we face. And so certainly if there's a physician that reaches out and we should all be encouraged, I encourage all of the people that I work with to seek help, talk to me, find a psychologist, 
but we all need help. And this gets to a very interesting aspect of what we do and what we experience. And that is this. So we can talk about our problems and we should talk about our problems and we should talk about our experiences and we should talk to each other about them because no one understands us because no one does what we do. Internists aren't like us. Intensivists aren't like us. There's certainly similarities, but we're different. So we have to talk about it, but we have to understand the nature of how and why we remember what we remember, why it caused concern, right? So there's the cognitive verbal aspect of what we can talk about. That's fantastic. That's very important. But there's also deeper kinds of memories that are stored not not in our neocortex, but in our limbic system and our brainstem. And how do we access those? What do we do to deal with that? And so as you probably see in your program, there are things offered such as yoga and being mindful. And why does that actually work? Well, it does actually work because it works on different parts of the brain to help us deal with those memories and process those memories in a more healthy way. Yeah, the neuroscience behind this topic is actually quite fascinating. Um, and I can imagine a day, one day, where we can actually map what's going on in each individual's brain and then address those things from neuroscience. That's a little bit of an aside. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about mentorship. How do you envision mentorship working in this arena? So I, I see it starting from the very beginning when people are interested in medicine. I think that's important. People don't understand what they're going to see and experience. And certainly as someone becomes a medical student, that should occur. And then as a resident, you know, interns are not ready for what they're going to see. They are probably traumatized by what they experience because they're not ready for it. So they should have a way to deal with this with a mentor. And I see it as a lifelong process. So I was the director of emergency medicine at Chinle for many years. Chinle is a Navajo hospital, IHS hospital resource limited, almost resource poor, fantastic patient population, but very high acuity, very difficult place to work because of the nature of uh, what happens on the reservation, the poverty, chronic diseases, violence, drugs and alcohol abuse. So my thought is this, physicians should have someone available to them to talk about what's happening in real time and after. So my proposition to the physicians and PAs and nurse practitioners that worked with me that I supervised was you call me at any time. And I think we should all have that available, not necessarily one person the way my model worked for most of the time, but we should have somebody that we can call and talk to. Could be a difficult case. You're not quite sure what to do. There's a social issue. You don't know what to do. Very stressful or a very devastating case, you know, something like a childhood death. Some emergency physicians should be trained in this and how to deal with this and how to help people through that trauma. You know, psychologists constantly deal with people and their trauma, and they have psychologists and other mental health professionals that they speak to so they can deal with the trauma that they've secondarily experienced in their practice. And I think we should, we should have that model. It's very important to talk about what happens in, our, in the ER. Very important to talk to other people that know about what's happening and to get that support. One of the things that I was kind of shocked about and have remained a little shocked about is how nervous emergency medicine residents are when they come to work with me. Not because they're working with me, because they're just so nervous about the over the environment that they work in. They're concerned about malpractice to a degree that is just, in my, my opinion, it's too much stress. They should be concerned about taking care of the patient. And so we need to help people understand the environment they work in and to support them throughout their career. Right. You've touched on so many interesting things there from medical legal to mentorship 
to changing the culture. And I want to concentrate a little bit more on how you change the culture in your emergency department. You had mentioned to start with, you can just offer people your help whenever they might need it. How else do you kind of destigmatize physicians asking for help in your department? As a specialty, we need to proactively speak with licensing bodies and hospitals and associations to destigmatize seeking mental health care on our applications for licenses and, and uh, credentialing. I mean, clearly, if somebody has a very serious problem, okay, fine, we'll talk about it when we credential you or you're up for a license. But this should just be part of the process and it just really should, it should be as destigmatized as getting your blood pressure checked or your cholesterol checked. There's a reason why people leave emergency medicine, right? And there's a reason why emergency physicians have so many problems disproportionate to other specialties. The nature of what we do is very difficult and we need help. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking recently more and more, if we flip this around on its head completely, I've learned more and more recently to be very appreciative of the advantages to our own lives and understanding of humanity of seeing so much suffering and death. It does give us perspective and an insight into humanity that very few people who don't practice medicine get. And so I think also just adopting a mindset of seeing the advantages of seeing what we see in the emergency department and being able to translate that into understanding humans better and feeling good that we have this understanding of humanity that very few people have and that we make a serious impact, positive impact on so many people's lives, all the patients that we help. You know, there's a way of taking that, you know, what can sometimes be traumatic to our psyche, seeing all this suffering and death, to flip it around and think about the positives of it and that we're in this privileged position to be able to really help these people. And that should make us feel good. You know, that's a really quite beautiful and insightful. I have a couple of comments about that. One is, you know, many, many hospitals, trauma centers have specific trauma programs where they have families of patients and patients who have undergone significant trauma meet with the trauma care teams. Very important. How often do we get to see the person we took care of or the family after the fact? It's healing for everybody. So healing's a part of it. Another part of it is, to share something about my, my life is I'm a high school running coach and have been for 12 or 13 years. And I take all of the difficulty of our work, reflect upon it. And as I coach these beautiful young people uh, and see them growing up and, you know, I love running and I love coaching running. I love to see what happens is to see that there's so much beauty in the world. And we, we deal with this difficult part of life. But we also need to deal with the beautiful part of life and put it in perspective. Being an emergency physician allows us to do that in a way that most people do not have the opportunity to do because we see how difficult life can be on a regular basis. Couldn't agree more. I want to move on to some more specific solutions or you know, some practical solutions to keeping our perspective, a healthy perspective, even though we witness you know, profound suffering and death, et cetera. You've mentioned a few of them already, but could you tell us about any other sort of practical solutions that emergency physicians can take away you know, tomorrow and start working on to try and keep perspective on what we do? One of the most important things, which can be difficult to get to in some ways, 
is to really enjoy your time off. And how do you get to that point where you can do that, where you can leave what happens in the ER in the ER? It's very difficult to do. And that has to start early on in our careers where, where we are trained to do that what, in whatever way that may be. And, and as you know, many emergency physicians are very active otherwise. You know, we hike, we run, we mountain bike, we ski, we do all this stuff, right? So that's part of it. I think part of it also can be that we have a way to talk to each other. I don't know about other departments. I know what my experience it is, but I think it's very important. Tomorrow, you can do this with your group. You can have a meeting with your group and you can talk about what's good and what needs improvement. And we have to have that interaction with our administrations because quite frankly, as well-intentioned as many administrations are, they don't really, may not understand what we do and, and how we have to do it, right? We have to have our time off, right? We, we can't have meetings at 10 o'clock in the morning when we've worked a night shift. It's just not reasonable. I think everyone should be encouraged if they have the inclination to see a mental health professional to talk about what happens. It may be scary at first, but it's very helpful to talk to somebody that can help us manage what we have experienced. So I think recognizing it's the, the first step. I mean, I, that sounds a little trivial perhaps, but it's not trivial. Recognizing it from day one. You know, I, I remember cases as an intern that to this day really bother me. And there really, there was nowhere to turn. No one was, it wasn't because people were malignant. It was because no one really thought about that's what we should be doing. And that's what we should be doing. I think it should start, especially for our field, as soon as someone declares that they're interested in emergency medicine, let's let them understand what's going to happen to them and what they're going to see. Yeah, I like the idea of sort of preventative medicine and starting right from the beginning, because it seems like most of what's in place is sort of reactionary to people that are having problems. And, and thankfully, those problems are being identified and hopefully dealt with. But yeah, that whole idea of it just being part of our culture and implementing strategies from the beginning of medical school all the way through and sort of a preventative style rather than just trying to put Band-Aid solutions. Can I, can I add one thing? It, and this touches on what you said before about how privileged we are. You know, we take care of human beings. That's what we do. That, that's what we do. And, and that is such a beautiful thing. And we take care of them at the best and worst times. And we interface with their families at the best and worst times. And it's an amazing privilege to be able to do that. And if we can hold on to that, even with all of the difficulties that we face personally from what we see and deal with, and secondarily from what we see and deal with, but to hold on to what we're doing and why we're doing it. I think that's very important. And to have that perspective, you have to be in a culture that promotes that right? That that's what we do. And I think, I think if we can hold on to that, I know that that's, I've all, I've tried that with my group to the young physicians who come in and they're seeing things they've never seen and having difficulties is to keep in mind that we're there to take care of people. And it's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. You know, when we were uh, discussing how we would prep for this segment, you had mentioned that being present for each patient can help give us perspective and help with our mental health. Could you just elaborate on that, being present for each patient? Yeah, I, I can. And this gets to you know what I just said about what a privilege it is to take care of people. One of the physicians I worked with had a very difficult case, very bad outcome, and it tore him apart. Probably still does, which is you know too bad because he can't be present, right? If, he, if he's worried about this 
difficult case, he can't be present. And he asked me, Eric, how do you, how do you do it? Because he saw me as this older physician who's been doing it for a long time. And I said, you know, every time I go see a patient, I ask myself, how can I love this patient? And love in a way of taking care of them. They may be hostile. They may be intoxicated. They may be unable to really give me much history. So it's difficult, but you know, the beauty of our lives, the beauty of our calling is it's very deep and, and we can go deep into that with every single patient. So I actually try that. I actually take a breath, go see the patient, think about it. What can I do for them? Cause that's why we're there. We're there to help them. Yeah. It really sort of pleases me that the solution for improving our mental state has something to do directly with being compassionate for our patients and our colleagues and ourselves for that matter. You know, we did a big podcast, probably my favorite main episode we've done in the entire history of VM cases, which was uh, episode 145, I think it was, uh, on compassionate care with the late, great Barbara Tatum. This segment here pairs perfectly with that for those listeners who haven't listened to it yet. But uh, I think maybe it would be a nice way to end the segment is just to remind people that if you're compassionate for your patients and for your colleagues and for yourselves, it goes a long way to improving your own job satisfaction and your mental state and your enjoyment of work. Yes, you know, we know what a long shift is like. We know what a long, difficult shift is like, a sleepless shift. But to be able to carry that compassion with us with every patient, and when we leave to know that that's where our heart was and that's where our mind was, that's why we're there and that gives us purpose in what we do. Thank you.